Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Don't rock the boat. Megatech, California wildfires, the return of no-deal Brexit, and an explosive book about President Trump all work to set the markets on edge. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, we mark the 19th anniversary of 9-11, that beautiful September morning torn apart by commercial airliners used as weapons to strike at the heart of Wall Street and of Washington. Almost 20 years later, it may be a virus now that has shaken us to our core, changed our lives, and made us feel less secure. But back then, it was a terrorist attack. We talked with one of those profoundly affected by 9-11, Dan Chung, who is now CEO of Alger Management, a firm that lost 35 employees that day, including the president of the firm, David Alger. And the 35 people represented basically our entire uh, investment team. I was the most uh, senior person to survive, but I was only 39 years old at the time. And as a practical matter, when you wipe out that much of your organization, did you consider not going forward, just shutting it down? Um, I'm sure some of us thought we would go out. And that was, in fact, I think even in some of the, you know, the rumors. But uh, I personally, uh, Fred Alger, we never considered not trying to rebuild. Um, it was really important to us to try to honor the people that we had lost and then also uh, you know, to honor the firm's history uh, in the investment world uh, by trying to rebuild and hopefully succeeding. When you have some horrific event like this, there are at least two dimensions. One is the business, what happens in the business. There's also the personal. I mean, you have the relatives, the loved ones of the people you've lost. How did you deal with both of those at the same time? 
Well, those were very difficult times. Um, you know, with 35 uh, people lost, uh, good friends. Uh, David was my uncle-in-law, uh, but also, uh, you know, I lost, uh, I was the head of the technology. I lost junior people who just graduated from college, had just started their first job and to talk to their parents. That was, that was the hardest. The, the parents of, of really young, bright um, kids who, um, you know, had just died in, on 9-11. Um, I think, you know, the best that you can do is to listen to their stories, uh, to understand that they want to talk about their loved ones, and try to appreciate how special each one of them was as an individual. I mean, I think that's, that's critical when you've experienced something like that loss, to just really listen and support um, the people in whatever, in whatever they want to tell you or not tell you, or whatever they want to do or, or not do. Um, hard, it was a very hard time for all of us. Alger management uh, not only survived, but in many ways it's bigger and stronger than it was even back 19 years ago. How did you get from there to here, given the fact that you were uh, almost on the grounds of extinction, and there you've come back even stronger? How did you do that? Well, I think, uh, you know, I realized that the word honor is, is, is very important to me. And so honoring the people, honoring the process, it instinctively led me to first that if we were going to rebuild the firm, we had to rebuild it as in the same philosophy, in the same culture and process that the lost, my lost colleagues and David Alger had, had, had built. You know, that's what they had, had worked so hard for. And so I realized that the people who could help me do that were what we call Alger alumni, people who had learned at Alger, often gotten their first break on Wall Street. And for some of them, it would have been a tough, tough to get kind of break and then went on to success other ways. And so I was very fortunate to have a few alumni uh, basically volunteer to come back to help rebuild the firm. And that's when I realized talking to them that as you look back on who was meaningful to you in your lives, it's often the people who gave you your first break or your, who, who gave you the tough lessons that later on led to your success. And so I had a few of those willing to come back and all committed to, um, rebuilding Alger in our same philosophy and process and, and, and in believing that that's the way we would honor both the lost people and their work, but also their personalities by trying to, trying to keep our culture alive because that's what they cherish. That's what they committed their effort to. It seems to me, Dan, that it says a lot about the loyalty people felt. Even after they'd left Alger, there was some special bond there that obviously people even before you had invested in, and it came back to your benefit after 9-11. Well, I think if we all think about you know, as you get older, <laughs> I'm quite a bit older now, but hopefully even when you're younger, you can think about who was meaningful. Was it an elementary school teacher? Was it a college teacher? Or was it the first boss that you had? You know, but who was meaningful in helping you become, you know, the fullest expression, the best expression of, of whoever you are, you know, help you get your talents to the next level, help you, you know, succeed. And I think that's why there was so much um, loyalty and passion about rebuilding Alger, you know, as Alger. I mean, we could have gone out, for example, and hired um, star portfolio managers of other firms, you know, with big track records and household names. But I sort of recognized that wouldn't rebuild the firm as Alger. It would just be sort of a, a collection of, of well-known people. Um, and so it was really that idea. And it, it did, ins it inspired a lot of people. And I'm sure it inspires a lot of people today still in whatever they may do. 
your company, Alger, clearly had a fairly strong DNA before 9-11 happened. As you look forward to today, uh, how has 9-11 and the loss of those 35 uh, beloved colleagues, how has it changed the DNA of Alger management as you see it today? I think that, again, I try to focus on some of the core values that they had. They've, of course, had to adapt over time. Um, the most important core value they had was a meritocracy. I mean, Wall Street is great on the investment side for if you deliver great performance for your clients, you can't really question <laughs> the great performance. That was Dan Chung, president of Alger Management. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Every week we turn to our special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard to give us the highs and the lows and sometimes just the plain odd of the week. Let's call it Summers Says and get through as much of this as we can in a rather packed week. Starting with our first question, Larry, which is what was the biggest surprise for you this week? That the president of the United States decided to give 18 hours of on-the-record interview to Bob Woodward with audio tapes that Woodward could make uh, public. It was a prescription for showing his soul uh, to the world in a context where he couldn't possibly have ended up looking good. In fact, he ended up almost worse than one could have imagined. But the decision to do that was inexplicable to me. Well, and particularly because it's not like Woodward has never done this to anybody before. I mean, if you knew anything about Woodward's past, he's done this to person after person after person. I mean, it says two interesting things. It says something about the degree of hubris the president has. And it says something about either the lack of strength, quality or lack of strength of his advisors. Because if anyone in any of the administrations I had served in had had any idea like that for the President of the United States, there would have been a clamor from everyone who worked in the White House that it was crazy and dangerous. Yep. So it was a mystery to me, but it's neither the first nor the mist last mystery about how this president conducts himself in office. That also assumes that the president actually listens to any of his advisors. I'm not sure there's proof of that. That's the point. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. Okay, how about on the radar, whether it's next week, next month, next year, what's on, the, on your radar that should be on ours and maybe isn't? I think we need to pay attention to uh, 
fluctuations uh, in the dollar. For a long time, currency fluctuations have not been a uh, large uh, issue, um, but they could be uh, again, especially if we hit a stretch after the election when there's a basic loss of confidence in the way our system is functioning. In the context of a disputed um, election, I could see a substantial judgment by investors not to want to hold U.S. assets and certainly not want not to want to hold uh, U.S. assets as a hedge uh, against risk. So we've been in a period where the focus has been on the interest bond market, the focus has been on the stock market, the focus has been less on the foreign exchange market, and I'm wondering whether uh, that's something that will deserve um, a careful, uh, careful look uh, going forward. I think it could also go in uh, the other direction. The dollar's traded down significantly in recent months, and maybe the euro deserves to have uh, strengthened, or maybe this is something of a false dawn uh, in Europe, and Europe's going to encounter uh, a variety of challenges uh, going forward. I just think there's more happening that could hit the value of uh, the dollar than there has been in a while. And so people need to be braced for significant changes in exchange rates and for those to ramify uh, into our markets. More broadly, I think that so far um, emerging markets have provided less drama than most of us would have expected during the COVID period. And that could easily change uh, in uh, the months ahead. The figures today suggesting almost a million new cases of COVID in India were pretty scary. Right. And maybe we got a little bit of a taste of the uncertainty about the currency markets this week when the pound really took it uh, on the chin after Boris Johnson said he was just going to walk away from his deal. But how do you discount or how do you price in a really uncertain uh, result of the election? Not who's going to win, but even whether we're going to know it and what it will take to do that. I'm a lawyer. I've studied law. I've covered these elections a long time. I really don't know how to project what's going to happen in November, December, even in January, perhaps. I think that's a real risk. I think it's a risk for the dollar. I think it's a big risk uh, for uh, equity markets. If you look at um, what traders would call the forward curve of volatility, it is showing record high levels of volatility standing out around the period uh, after the election. There's likely to be some substantial difference between the people who vote in person and the people who vote by mail, which means that the votes that are counted on election day could give a quite misleading signal as to uh, the result of the election. The Bush v. Gore thing was a serious challenge to the quality of American democracy. But there was no one who doubted right. that if some legal process ended in Al Gore losing the election, he would accept that defeat and urge his successors to do so. And the same thing was true with respect to President uh, Bush. Right. I'm not sure we can say that right, uh, right now about the current president right. of the United States. And 
I think that does create a right. huge aura of uncertainty, and, and finally, which will have economic and market consequences. Yeah, and finally, Larry, what about conventional wisdom? Where was it wrong this week? Often we find it's wrong. Where did you find it particularly mistaken? I think where it may be wrong on a very broad issue, David, is conventional wisdom thinks that what we have to fear is a super strong Chinese economy. I think we have to fear at least equally much that China hits huge economic turbulence, and in order to keep their society together, they rally around nationalist ideas and uh, aggressive ideas, and that that becomes a source of conflict between the United States and China. I am as nervous or more nervous about Chinese economic failure than I am about Chinese success. And I think the conventional wisdom should be as well, and it isn't. Yeah, you don't want to have a wounded China feeling they're in a corner. We don't know what they might do. We don't, we don't at all know what they might do. Uh, there's plenty of history of uh, leaders turning to uh, nationalism and to blaming foreign, uh, foreign powers when they have domestic difficulties as a way of rallying their populations. And the legitimacy of the Chinese government has depended on the economic success it has delivered. And if that economic success starts to diminish, they will need other sources of legitimacy and aggressiveness within Asia and hostility to the United States and pointing to purported American threats are potential sources of that legitimacy. And that could lead to a much more contentious uh, world. And that is what Summer says. Many thanks to our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Coming up, the ECB says the European economy doesn't need more help, at least not yet. And contributor Stephanie Flanders says the only thing surprising was how positive its message was. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The European Central Bank had a tricky task this week, keeping its support for the economy where it was, even though there are some signs of trouble ahead, leading ECB President Lagarde to plot a steady course. We do not target, uh, but we monitor, and we monitor carefully, because obviously the appreciation of our currency has an impact uh, on, on our inflation. Bloomberg senior executive editor for economics and Wall Street Week contributor Stephanie Flanders says that if anything, Madame Lagarde seemed a bit more optimistic than expected, given where some data are pointing. Yeah, and the language, uh, certainly the formal language out of this meeting uh, was exactly the same as at the last meetings, pointing to the fact that risks were on the downside. But coming into it, I think there were a number of people in the markets considering the data in the last few weeks in Europe had not been so great that you've seen the recovery leveling off and even starting to go down, the momentum sort of weakening in quite a few European countries. We were wondering whether she would sound even more downbeat. And in fact, uh, as you suggest, you know, the overall tone of her press conference was, uh, if anything, upbeat. And we actually have heard, uh, Bloomberg heard soon after the meeting that some members of the council had wanted to be even more upbeat in their language and had, had been overruled. So are they seeing something in the numbers? Because the numbers they had came up marginally. I mean, they're not cheery economic numbers, but nevertheless, whether it's GDP growth or whether it's inflation, they come up since the last estimate. 
Yeah, I mean, there was no there was no big change in the forecast, but you're quite right. The growth forecast was just a tiny bit better, but they're still expecting a big hole to be missing in the European economy at the end of the year due to, due to the COVID recession. The inflation numbers looking a little bit higher, uh, but actually that probably doesn't take into account the fact that the euro has been soaring in the markets in the last few weeks. So it's, it would certainly this is not a time when you would think that they would be changing their, uh, their signalling around risks. And if anything, as you know, many people in the financial markets are expecting them to have to do more to stimulate the eurozone economy before the end of the year. Stephanie, you mentioned the, the euro soaring. It really has been on an uptick, without a doubt. And that poses some challenges for the European Central Bank because the higher the euro goes, the harder it is to get the inflation up, which is their target there. Madame Lagarde did address that, so they talked about it a fair amount, although she didn't seem to be overly concerned. Yeah, and this, if anything, is the first time we've seen a shift in the Lagarde ECB relative to the European Central Bank under her predecessor, Mario Draghi, where the, the exchange rate, although, of course, they don't formally say they're targeting the exchange rate, the exchange rate seemed to loom really large in their strategy for stimulating the economy. They always wanted to keep it down to help exporters, to help the economy. She was sounding, and I, we get the impression that the council overall was not so concerned about uh, the level of the euro or the fact that it's likely maybe to go up uh, further. And that, that, that is a shift. And it's going to make it harder, as you say, to hit that inflation target, they, which at the moment they have no sign of hitting. It looks like in two years' time, the core inflation rate will still be only 1.1%. So really half of the target they're trying to reach. Now, they've indicated, as I understand it, that their extraordinary bond borrowing program will go through the middle of next year. But some people thought she might extend that. When do they have to really address that question of when they go even further with that program? Yeah, there's an interesting debate on the council about whether the amount that they've previously talked about for the special program, the 1.35 trillion euros, was a ceiling or just a sort of overall amount that they're going to spend and then they might think about spending more. Um, they don't have, they can keep up the bond purchases, as you say, through the middle of next year. There's no particular moment where they're going to have to announce a bigger envelope. Uh, but I think a lot of people in the financial markets, if you continue to see this trajectory of the economy, the recovery kind of bottoming out, flattening out, um, not continuing, if you like, that last bit of the V, I think there will be quite a lot of uh, question mark about whether they should increase the bond purchases at the end of the year or at least announce that it's going to increase uh, and extend longer than the middle of uh, 21. Stephanie, as you know well, in the United States, we really focus particularly on the jobs numbers every month and trying to figure out where the economy is. Give us a sense of the employment situation over in Europe, because it's done relatively well, as I understand it. But I also heard that there, some of these furlough programs may be expiring at some point. You know, every government is facing the same challenge. and It's a version of the challenge that the uh, lawmakers are facing in the U.S. over the stimulus package, but kind of in reverse. The U.S. has had a lot more people join the unemployment rolls, and then they have a debate about whether or not to keep those increased benefits going or not or try and reintroduce them. In Europe, you have a lot of people who are no, not unemployed yet. They've managed to suppress, if you like, the, un, the rise in the unemployment rate they might have seen because they have these furlough programs or versions of it where the government is basically paying employers to keep people on their books. There's an enormous program that was supposed to run out at the end of October in the UK, similar programs in Europe. Different countries are taking different decisions on this. Germany has said it's going to extend its program. Spain is saying it's going to end its program in in September, but there will be a lot of different countries, difficult debates in different countries about that in the next few weeks, because at the moment, the unemployment rate much lower than in the US because they have managed to keep those people on the books, but still effectively paid by the government, supported by the government. 
That was Stephanie Flanders, Bloomberg's senior executive editor for economics. Coming up, whatever happened to that fourth round of fiscal stimulus? Couldn't we use it just about now? We ask Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. However we pay for it, the longer we wait for more fiscal stimulus, the less urgent it seems to be. But Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi says it's needed more than ever. Yes, we have tens of millions of people who are unemployed in our country and whatever the uh, Uh, analysis is of some uh, for them at their kitchen table, we need a stimulus. Uh, We need a stimulus in terms of of job creation. We need money to invest in ending. This is just the mystery to me why this administration has refused to invest in crushing the the virus. Uh, Because only in doing that are we able to open the economy and open our schools safely. Uh, We need funding for uh, keeping people from being evicted. We need food security funding and the rest. And all of this is stimulus. Uh, Food stamps are stimulus. Uh, Unemployment insurance benefits are stimulus to the economy. Uh, So while they are stabilizers, they're also stimulus. So, So if that's the case, why aren't people across the way in the Senate and particularly across the aisle getting that message? Because they don't seem to be very inclined to come to the table and get something done. Well, I don't know why they don't, because the chairman of the Fed and other uh, Fed leaders around the country have said very clearly uh, that we need a stimulus, that we need a boost. Uh, They've even referenced that state and local governments, fiscal soundness is important to the soundness of, of our economy. And in not supporting state and local government, people will be uh, put out of their jobs. They'll go on unemployment insurance. What good is that? Why would we want to deprive the American people of the services they deserve? Why wouldn't we honor our heroes, food, I mean, uh, uh, health care, as well as food, teachers, transportation, sanitation, our, te- our first responders? Why would we want them to risk their lives to save lives uh, so they could lose their jobs? Because there are just some in the Senate, on the Republican side of the aisle, who said they don't want to spend one more dollar. Imagine, they don't want to spend one more dollar to crush the virus, uh, to open our economy by 
by crushing that virus to support our state governments and putting money in the pockets of the American people. And Madam Speaker, that leads me exactly to the question, is there a deal, even though you wouldn't might not want to take the deal, is there any deal you could take it off from the Republicans? I mean, you and the minority leader, Chuck Schumer, said it's an emaciated bill. Is there a bill at all even uh, for an emaciated bill? Because as you said, some people say not one dollar. Well, they, what the Sen- Senator McConnell put forth is as fraudulent. It is, as, as uh, Leader Schumer said, em- emaciated. It's not, a, they call it a skinny bill, and he calls it an emaciated bill, and I join him in that. It's only a check the box so that some of his endangered Republican senators can go home and say, well, see, I tried. But it isn't trying. It's not even an attempt to do the right thing. And Mitch McConnell knows that because he has to satisfy those Republicans in his caucus who don't want to spend one more dollar, whether it's feeding the food insecure children in our country, saving their families from eviction, stopping the dismantling of the postal service so that people can vote without risking their health, uh, with, again, first and foremost, crushing, crushing the virus and putting money into the pockets of the American people. Uh, what they have is so meager uh, that it insults the intelligence of the American people does not solve the problem. And it is not, again, we know that we have to compromise. We know we have to negotiate in order to reach an agreement. We all want an agreement. Make no mistake about that. But get serious. Get real, Mitch McConnell. Well, let's he talk was, about what. He paused. He pushed the pause. Remember, May 15th, when we passed our bill, he pushed the pause button. It wasn't until the last few weeks that he's now even coming up with a suggestion. In that time, nearly 5 million more people have become infected since he pushed the pause button, and nearly 100, over 100,000 people have died. So talk about what it means to get serious. And I guess part of my question is, get serious with whom? Is it Senator McConnell that you're negotiating with? Is it uh, Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin? Is it Mark Meadows up at the White House? Who's on the other side of the negotiating table from you to get well, to a deal? Well, certainly not Mark Meadows. But uh, in terms of the uh, negotiation, the Republicans have to negotiate among themselves. Uh, Mitch McConnell has this pathetic bill, which is half of what the uh, 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 Secretary Mnuchin has proposed. So they aren't even in agreement. They are in disarray. Uh, We have said we would come down. First, we came down a trillion dollars. Then we came down and further and said we would meet them halfway. Uh, And some of that is because we can put off the timing of some of ours. We're not uh, being Sophie's choice by saying we're feeding some children and not others. It's about timing and we can have that negotiation. Uh, But to ignore those needs Uh, to ignore. How could they ignore the virus and the spread of it and the cost to our economy, our education system, and the rest? So two of the sticking points for us are state and local government, which, by the way, not only meets many needs of the American people, but provides over 90 percent of the public education system in in our country, meeting our education needs. And then further money that is needed, coronavirus centric, uh, in terms of education, we're um, probably double what they want to do. And of course, the funding uh, for crushing the virus. Uh, there would be three areas uh, where we're pretty far apart. Uh, Madam Speaker, on the state and local assistance, particularly, you know what the arguments are yeah. on the other side. They don't, they don't want the money to go for things like bloated, what they would call bloated pension plans. Are you, are you willing to p- attach restrictions that say it really goes for things specifically related to COVID-19? 
Well, first of all, I wouldn't say those are reasons that they're not doing it. I think those are excuses because they don't believe in governance. They don't believe in science, therefore they haven't gone with the testing, tracing, treatment, isolation, mask wearing, etc. They don't believe in science and they don't believe in governance. So there is no, re this money for co uh, that we're wanting state and local government is for a very specific coronavirus centric purpose to, uh, to offset some of the expenses that have already, uh, the outlays that have already been made uh, to fight the virus and meet the needs, the health needs of people infected. And secondly, uh, to talk about the loss of revenue because of the shutdowns around the country. Uh, that, again, will, having that in there will prevent further uh, uh, firing. Uh, people will have to be let off from work and then they'll go on unemployment insurance. So where have you saved money by reducing uh, services to the American people and having uh, uh, state governments are telling us we're going to have to raise taxes, fire people, and reduce services unless we get these resources. So what the Republicans are saying is, is really quite sad because they know that this money is corona-centric and you have to document uh, uh, the need in order to get the money. Madam Speaker, as you describe this, uh, I'm not sure how you get there from here, given the process you've described, because it's not clear exactly with whom you're negotiating or that they have anything that they can negotiate because some of their members don't want to spend any money at all. How do we get there, particularly given the fact that you're going to have to go on recess to get back to, to uh, campaign back in home districts pretty soon? Well, we'll be here for the month of September at least, or as long as it takes. Uh, we have to make sure that government is not shut down. Uh, as the president so proudly announced he would take pride in shutting down the government the last time it was shut down. So uh, we'll come to agreement on that, I feel quite certain. Uh, we have other initiatives that we need to put forward, and some of them go directly to making sure uh, that the American people, uh, that we are again uh, making the scientific decision to crush the virus, uh, to uh, honor our heroes with state and local resources and putting money in the pockets of the American people and at the same time ensuring that people are able to vote without risking their life or their health so that they can vote safely. Uh, ignoring what the president is saying about vote by mail, which he does, and uh, instead uh, having confidence that their vote will be counted as cast. So we have a tall order to address here. And if you don't believe in science, as they obviously do not, and you don't believe in governance, as many of them do not, they don't want to even spend any money uh, to honor the science, uh, then there's a, a strong difference of opinion. And we cannot, uh, we will find agreement. I know we will. But in order for that to happen, they're going to have to come to their own agreement instead of being hundreds of billions of dollars apart between what Mitch McConnell is doing and what, what uh, Secretary Mnuchin has suggested. Speaker Pelosi, you referred to the policy of shutting down the government. There have been reports that you and Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin have more or less agreed on a way to keep it going, presumably with a continued resolution. Why are you so confident? Because it has been the case in the past that President Trump, even though we thought we had a deal, basically changes his mind and shuts down the government. Why are you confident that President Trump won't do that this time? Well, you're never confident about the president when you're talking about veracity or truth. That's why it's a waste of time to even listen to what he says. But the fact is, is that we did not come to an agreement. We separately acknowledged that it would be important for us to have a clean, continuing resolution, uh, that they would not be heaping things on there that would be un unacceptable for one side 
or the other. Uh, and so uh, it only makes sense to do that, and I feel quite certain that we will get that done. And uh, if the President chooses to veto a continuing resolution, I would find it hard for him to, to do that. But who knows? The Republicans in Congress have never stood in the way to any of his uh, grotesque behavior, so I don't know why they would start now. But nonetheless, I think that they, it's not in anybody's interest for a government to be shut down. It is, uh, it, it is to be avoided at all costs. And we have many times swallowed bitter pills in order to keep government open because it's essential to do so. That was Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. And that does it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.